A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Off the Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu with him. I hope you're all doing well today. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode is with Mr. Matt Goodison. Matt is a composer, producer, songwriter. Um, he's one half of Snow Palms. Uh, he was formerly uh, a co-founder and, and member of Infidels. Um, and we will talk about all of this as well as his teaching career and such as this podcast unfolds. Um, before we get on with it, I just want to say thanks to Scribius Pip and everybody over at the Distraction Pieces Network. Go over there and have a look at the array of amazing podcasts on that network and uh, I feel very proud and privileged to be one of those um, also a big thanks to Mr 76 uh, 76 is uh, the producer of this podcast um, alongside lots of uh, other great podcasts and uh, and if you have one that needs um, producing then um, go and find Mr 76 on our socials and, and hit him up because uh, not only is he a great producer he's a really nice dude all right. Okay. So, um, if this is your first time listening to Off the Beaten Track podcast, I will suggest that you go and have a look in the archives as well. You will find podcasts from the likes of uh, Blimey Chic, James Lavelle, Julian Marley, Kate Thornton, James Buckley from the Inbetweeners, Block Party. Oh God, the list goes on. Um, so yeah, it's rammed full of producers, artists, musicians. DJs uh, all telling their story about the uh, about their creative journey and the songs that have soundtracked it. Um, okay, and if that's not enough, um, you can also support uh, Off the Beaten Track not only by subscribing and listening, but we have a Patreon page as well. Um, I say we, I I have a Patreon page as well, um, and yeah, just for I think it's you know a few dollars a a month, you will get um, another episode exclusive to just patrons each week as well so anything you can do over there is super super appreciated um i think that's me done i think i can just get on with uh, the job at hand which is saying please enjoy off the beat and track podcast with mr matt goodison i've got an announcement save our souls clothing www.sosclothing.co.uk why am i telling you this they're our official sponsor yeah that's right go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale you're going to love it so they've decided they want to be our sponsor which is amazing and what i have to do is i have to tell you about why they're amazing so here's a little bit of blurb so they've only been going a year and they're based in south end on sea just up the road from me they put the company together based on a a love of tattoos and alternative music. 
And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we are recording. We are at the WeWork building in uh, in Hipsterville, London. And sitting opposite me today is composer, producer, songwriter, one half of Snow Palms, formerly of Infidels, teacher, uh, candlestick maker, uh, Matt Goodison. Hey, how's it going? I'm good, thank you. You all right? Yeah, I'm uh, really thankful to be here. So thanks for inviting me. I've been following your podcast and seeing people I know and just felt it was getting closer <laughs> to me. And then, bing, <laughs> a little message popped up. Well, we've been chatting, haven't we? That yeah. It seems weird that we, we've got so many sort of shared friends. And, and I presume when you worked with Jags, was that, um, former guest Jags Kuna, was that with Infidels? That was Infidels, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jags produced the first Infidels record. Right. Infidels, which was a real honour for us. We were huge Primal Scream fans. Yeah. And, um, and I was a huge Wall of Sound fan. And, um, yeah, it felt like a, a real meeting of minds. And, yeah. and Jags, you know, is an incredible human being. Yeah. And one of the most yeah, inspirational and lovely men I've ever met. So. I'm sure you're never going to find anyone that walks this planet that goes, yeah, he's not very nice. No, he is He is definitely uh, held in the highest esteem by yeah. everyone that knows him and doesn't, I think. Yeah, <laughs> rightly so. He's an, he's an absolute sweetheart. Okay, we start this with track one, which is a song with the greatest ever intro. You've chose the biggest intro ever. I know, right? I thought about it for a long time. Yeah. And I thought, what intro really yeah. is utterly iconic? Yeah. And I can't think of a bigger intro. I thought of Guns N' Roses. Yep. I thought about, you know, so many records. And I just don't think anything is as iconic as this. Yep. Personally. No. You can announce your uh, your intro. So yeah, after much thought and deliberation, I thought I'd throw in quite a wild card yeah. and decided on Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. I mean, is that not like an hours long of an intro? Where where does the song start? <laughs> well, I don't think it is necessarily a song. You know, it's a composition. Yeah. But um, to me, you know, it was. It's the moment so many ideas in the 20th century 
combined together, didn't they? Yeah. So you had this sort of very hippie left uh, spirituality, and you had recording technology, and you had Mike Oldfield, who's quite a recluse, then you had Richard Branson and his kind of story thrown in there. And, um, but it's such a joyous, optimistic piece. And then on top of that, you've got the flip of the use in the exorcist. Of course. Um, which again was another iconic kind of moment in the 20th yeah. century. So yeah, in, in answer to the question, I don't think I really know where the song starts. Yeah, I guess that's the beauty of it. But also the way that the intro loops in that sort of uh, lolloping time signature. I mean, probably I'm not really that uh, of an expert in it, in it, but it must be like a seven eight or something. It always starts before you expect it to again. Yeah, <laughs> it keeps coming yeah, round. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and I think that's very symptomatic of the whole track. So, just to go back to something that you mentioned about the, the Richard Branson. So, was this one of the first releases on Virgin, or was this like a, a landmark release it was for a, Virgin? Because it, it was a landmark release for Virgin. Yeah, yeah. it really marked them out as a as a definitive record label yeah. um, with a kind of unique ideology. And you know, again, I'm not a huge expert in in this, but. Um, my understanding is Richard Branson was all in favour of the record shops, like which basically describes modern hipster London, yeah. where you kind of lie around and mm. and uh, and uh, yeah, that that record became very iconic, I think, with that sort of pursuit of um, alternativeness. Yeah, and I think that sort of went away for quite a while. And now, I mean, the reason I picked it now is I I really feel that there is a pull back towards a kind of spiritual pursuits like looking for more looking for deeper and i think tubular bells is one of those real uh transcendental moments of the 20th yeah. century and you know for me it was a record i heard as a kid and fell in love with it yeah but didn't really know why yeah and another thing that i'm really into and love is 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 kind of genre clashing and and ideas merging and and mike Oldfield was taking a lot of the you know minimalist ideas from New York at the yeah. time and sort of bringing them into into a mainstream format which yeah. again by today's standards seems utterly insane like yeah. could a track like Tubular Bells be as big now as it was then I mean you know for those that don't know I think up until you know probably the tail end of the 80s it was one of the biggest selling albums of all time it was wasn't it absolutely huge yeah um yeah. the the cover is incredible yeah and and that was one of the things as a kid seeing the video nasty of The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah. And then hearing it on vinyl and yeah. looking at that sleeve, it just conjured up a, a million different kind of things. It yeah. was like, and it was, it didn't sound like anything else as no. well. It, it, it's, do you know what, I've not listened to, to Tubular, but have you listened to it recently? I have listened to it, yeah, I do. I revisit it quite a lot because I think it's important to, you know, when you're writing music, you get very caught up in your own kind of world of creation and sometimes you need to just step back and you go where have I come from yeah. and what is what is a record that gives me goosebumps every single time I hear yeah. it you know so I kind of you know I don't play it that often because it's too yeah. many bells but um, I do play it fairly regularly and, and that yeah it's that cover it's like a you know it's kind of it's almost like a spaceship isn't yeah. it this, yeah. this kind of metallic yeah. thing floating in space you know and it yeah and, th and that kind of I take it it's some sort of tubular bell, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I like, don't know. I've never like, really known. You know, pre-internet, you just yeah. you just assumed that you wouldn't find out the answers, yeah. so you just made up your own story, didn't you? And it looks like it kind of just 
he's just, for want of a better word, like he's just just out there. Yeah. And and I guess that's kind of. I think that you know that leans towards that sort of transcendental other. Like, yeah. And uh, and one of the, you know, for me, one of the most important uh, ideas in music is the way music can so directly take you somewhere. It, it's almost like it goes straight into the main vein. Yeah. And it it bypasses so so much of our resistance mm. and we can just get tra- taken away. Yeah. And, you know, the goosebump factor. You yeah. Know, I just think music does that, to me, the best of all art yeah. forms. Absolutely. Just brings pure joy of the moment. Track two. The first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. Yeah. Yeah, I think this, you know, I've, I've chosen a direct path to walk through this podcast because obviously there are multiple eyes isn't there? yeah. there's multiple personalities and multiple you's and uh, the you on a Sunday morning is different from the you on a Friday night Completely. from a Monday morning and uh, you know I have a, I've had a long history of talking about and being in the band the infidels which was a real electro punk jump up and down party mm-hmm. so I've always played records that showcase that sure. kind of journey to that to that band but now um i kind of left that 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 person died somewhere way back in 2012 which is a story we'll probably come to at some point through this chat but um i decided to focus all the music on this podcast to all of the music that's inspired me on the sunday mornings or the you know the reflective moments mm. the moments when you're lying in your tiny tour bus and uh you know it's all quiet and you're sort of having those reflective moments and um yeah michael nyman's the piano is the is the track i chose for um for having an emotional impact because my my kind of world now is poised in the modern classical post classical new minimalism modern composition all these names i don't really know what they are yeah. but um it was one of the first classical pieces that absolutely gripped me. And I'd never seen the film. I still haven't seen the yeah. film. And I came across it by somebody playing the piano in a in a rehearsal room when I was must have been 14 years old. And I burst out, wow, what is this music? So he, he said, yeah, it's Michael Nyman, the piano. And, and it still absolutely captivates me, like how much raw emotion yeah. can be in this piece. And it wasn't until later that I, I really, you know, got into Brian Eno and started to read... Brian Eno's ideas uh, and then Michael Nyman's ideas that I started to unpack these kind of ideas of minimalism and again I think it's a very resonant piece today with with our overabundance of stuff and ideas and mental health issues that there's a community of people seeking minimalism in their life and I think it's a wonderful you know emotionally raw minimalist composition So that emotion that you felt would have been what? Again, it's... I think it's... I mean, it's this rawness, this, this deep sense yearning. And, um, and for me, I think that song and lyrics, you know, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, and that, that does it in one way. But there's a different access to a, a track with no lyrics yeah. that isn't in a song format um, it's just the actual vibrations of the sound itself yeah. and uh yeah it it connects so deeply into our souls 
And I never really understood why. I always thought that was a cosmic yeah. connection or maybe a connection with God, whatever yeah. God is or yeah. to everyone. Um, and I still don't disbelieve that. But, you know, after doing a lot of reading and learning, I also found out that the am amniotic fluid in the womb is highly conducive to sound. And babies from almost 8, 10, 12 weeks old start responding to voice and song and music. So I now, you know, understand that that could be one of the reasons why music is so powerful and emotive to us as humans, because it's one of the first senses that, yeah. that is awakened in our, in our very, very early developing yeah. brains. And uh, they did lots of studies on babies and found, you know, babies with mums that played the violin and all kinds of things. The babies responded in the test to a specific mum singing the songs and really so it awakens very very early in our in our, in our developmental process and you know i think this song you know by michael nyman kind of does that to me yeah. it sort of bypasses everything and yeah. just rips my heart out <laughs> you were 14 when you wrote that yeah i think yeah i mean i distinctly remember standing outside the 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 practice room and yeah. hearing someone play it and and again you know what what a wonderful way to experience a song for the first time. Yeah. And that's actually nowadays so rare yeah. that we experience a piece of music in that live setting first. Yeah. Music is, is often the other way around. But in the history of music, recording music is very small yeah. in, in, the, in the large canon of music. Yeah. So where was you born? I was born in Dartford. Oh, OK. Which is a place I'm sure you were not too unfamiliar with no you're five minutes over the bridge from me <laughs> it's all in the accent i recognized it i didn't say anything but i knew i, I know that twang that's the twanger home yeah so dartford is a is a it's a funny place to describe because my image of it is is upon descent of the dartford bridge mm -hmm. into the industrial wasteland mm. and yeah, i was born in dartford uh Dartford Hospital um, and grew up in a place called Crayford, mm -hmm. which is sort of one, one lesser than Dartford. Yeah, that's, that's, I wouldn't have put that any different myself. <laughs> and I feel like I'm incredibly mean on Crayford, but um, it's. I later found out I did some research into Crayford. Um, as you can tell, I've, probably, I've done a lot of thinking in my last 10 years. Yeah. I did none before it, so <laughs> trying to make up for it. And it had the Vickers factory, which made a lot of the World War II armaments. Oh, okay. And I think that kind of mentality really uh, represents the Crayford yeah. mindset. It's steely, it's kind of hard, but it's very working. I yeah. think it's fair, but there's a friendliness, there's a camaraderie to it. But there is a little bit of a kind of um, crap mm. <laughs> feeling to it too. Yeah. And um, the saddest thing about Crayford is I think that that steeliness has been lost to corporate takeover of like your Sainsbury's. Yeah. I think we have the biggest Sainsbury's in the world in Crayford. And we had Allied Carpets, Pet World, you know, all these big industrial centres just yeah. landed on Crayford. So the yeah. Crayford I grew up in was, was very like a wasteland. There was lots of gravel and yeah. just sort of loose space. Uh, on the other side of the bridge, literally just the other side of the bridge, which was full of chalk pits that yeah. we would go and yeah, play same. in. And now there's a, a lakeside shopping centre plonked on that with yeah. uh, a myriad of other such yeah. things, as, the, as you mentioned. Yeah. 
plonked everywhere and lots of chimneys chucking out shit everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and to the fact that Thurrock, where I live, is the most polluted place in the UK. Yeah. So again, you would probably experience those changes in real time. Yeah. From you know those chalk pits that we had. You know, I remember playing in those, and it was a very open space. Yeah. Not necessarily what you describe as beautiful, but it had a romance to its kind of barren, bleak industrialness. Yeah. And uh, and it was a wonderful place to be a kid. But then as I grew up, yeah, all these large industrial capitalist sites kind of landed on top of it, and. You know, not that I'm against that. I'm not going to go on a huge yeah. anti-capitalist rant. But um, but I just don't believe that any of the councils particularly thought about the impact on the communities um, of those places. Yeah. So, and a lot of those wild spaces were, were you know, for kids to play and things like that. So, um, and I think this had a radical change on what it feels like to live there now. Yeah, I... I think that's mirrored the other side of the bridge as well yeah so uh you know in short i left yeah. <laughs> my modus operandi was to get out of crayford yeah yeah <laughs> and I, I often joke with my uh with my mates to the nwa song straight out of crayford yeah. brilliant <laughs> brilliant but it's done us in good stead actually yeah. coming growing up there so I can't, i'm not as down on it now as yeah. i used to be i've got a love for it all right um, well, whilst we talk growing up, let's go to track three, which is a song that reminds you of your uh, your time at school. Yeah, I think again, there's you know, there's it's a long period at school, isn't it? So there was multiple, multiple, mm-hmm. multiple narratives that I sure. could pull out of being at school. Um, you know, from I was I was the early adopter of tape technology to make tracks for all the kids in school, and uh, I remember setting up a business. Where uh, where I taped the records I'd bought, Salt and Pepper, Technotronic, How old Snap. Are you? I'm 41. Right. How, how old are you? 46. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I would have been uh, I've been in the youth in the playground, you yeah. know, into slightly different music. You'll probably listen to the Smiths as I was listening to Technotronic. <laughs> no, I like to hear that as well. And yeah, I set up a business where um, it was. A, I'm the world's worst businessman because my business was basically I'll give you free music because music's so awesome you need it. Right. So uh, I distribute all this music for everyone. And my dad, who's a massive music fan, he had a great hi-fi setup with the tape recorder and all the records. So there'd be a lot there of music. There was loads of music at home. Yeah, loads of music. I'm really great music. Like my dad's a massive fan of kind of Mississippi field recordings and you oh, know, wow. early jazz and. Yeah, listening to like Sun House, just singing into an old mic, and he had subscriptions to things like Arhuli Records and Red Lick Records, and wow. every day there'd be deliveries of bonkers music, and there was just there was just stacks of vinyl kind of all over the living room. Oh, amazing! Um, so it was an it was a it was a fabulous childhood, and I, consequently, I didn't listen to the radio because I didn't see the need. Why do people listen to the radio? You don't need the yeah. radio. I just pick these records out and put them on and play them, you know, and uh, sometimes at wrong speeds and whatnot. It was great yeah. fun. Um, but I didn't really enjoy school. I didn't fit in in Crayford in school. I grew up with that, like, I'm thick mentality, which which I now recognise as you don't fit the testing criteria <laughs> Very well. You felt thick, or you yeah. felt you was treated as if you was thick. I, I felt genuinely felt like I was completely thick, and I could never figure anything out ever. Um, and I look back on it now, and I was, you know, I had a rocket club where we sent rockets up into the sky. I was coding a spectrum, 
you know, all of which, none of that fitted into the school way of looking at the world. But like thinking of it now, a six-year-old programming a computer, that's pr- pretty impressive, you know. Yeah. Um, so I was just so engaged in the things I loved that I didn't have time for the things people told me to do. Yeah. Which I think stay, has stayed with me now, much to my, uh, you know, success and failures in life. Um, but I didn't really enjoy school. And then, you know, as we went, as we went on in school, I came across this amazing sc- uh, music teacher called Miss O'Sullivan. And um, they'd just invested in a bit of equipment. So we had a sampler, we had like a wow. sound module, and we got this computer, and no one knew how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> so they lent it to me for Christmas, and I figured it all out. And then basically, what, so no one knew how to use it. So they, <coughs> no. they went, Can you take your time yeah. and work it Can out? You figure please? it out. Yeah, figure it out yeah. how to use it. And, uh, you know, it was very old technology, so it was tricky yeah. to use, but I figured it out. And um, yes, yeah, set up a little mini production business in school, again for free, because yeah. I just thought, that it was important that people got their music out of their yeah. head and into the world. So yeah. I'd set up in this little practice room and I'd make, you know, all sorts of music for people, classical stuff, rave stuff, um, you know, sampling them, you know, and putting it all together. And um, I think that was when my life really started, the school started to turn around. And, you know, I started to have a fabulous time and got into all kinds of music. And, um, and you put that down to that music teacher kind of... I think, like in life, sometimes you need someone to throw you a, you know, throw you a bone. Yeah. And uh, I think she was the first person that treated me with, uh, with respect and a knowledge that no other teacher had ever done before. And you know, by lending me the equipment and she gave me keys yeah. to the music room. So there was that sort of level of trust. Um, and as well, she really supported that. And and the most crucial thing that she did for me was, um, was supported me to not do A levels in Crayford. And I went off to this wonderful uh, music college, which was the first popular music college in London called Kingsway, in, in the heart of Farringdon, next to the Barbican. So I trotted off there. I just, you know, turned 16 and trotted off there. And that, my life just exploded into a world of colour. And, uh, and the track I've chosen to kind of really capture this, this transition, this late night at school, is, is a really forgotten classic of the 90s. Now, as a club promoter, you probably remember it. Mm. Um, but Global Communication... They really captured an aspect of the 90s that's quite forgotten, the wonderful chill-out room. Yeah. And, and we used to go clubbing, we used to go hard, and the music was loud and pounding, and you dance. And I remember BPM counters on the wall going up. Yeah. But then you had this, like, the detox room. Yeah. You'd go into this little room in the side, and you just kind of relax, have a little yeah. lie down, have a think, you know, a cup of tea. Yeah. And... That is really lost in modern clubbing. And one of the records that soundtracked that part of my life was Global Communication. Yeah. And, uh, and a, a guy gave it to me at school. I copied it on cassette because I didn't know where, how, what even music it was. Yeah. And I remember saying to him, what is this music? And he said, it's ambient music. Yeah. And I was, I was like, what's that? Yeah. And how do I get more of it? And he said, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so we never did. Me and my friends just had this Global Communication yeah. tape and we played it to death. So uh, some of them are going to be listening to this podcast. Yeah. And we used, to have, uh, we used to have a shed in the bottom of the garden. We sat in the shed and we just played Global Communication on repeat. And I think this was track number eight or nine. And they didn't have any track names. Yeah. But every time it came on with this pulsating, it's absolutely magic, about three quarters of the way through the record. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough in Ibiza to meet Tom Middleton. Right, and uh, and I just told him how 
absolutely in love with with that record i i, I am and and how much it shaped my life and yeah. my my life as a composer and a person yeah and oh, about wonderful. 15 years later, I did find more ambient records, oh, you know, go, in Hackney there. Library. <laughs> yeah, when the internet arrived. <laughs> so, what did you want to be when you was at school? I what? Oh well, this you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna open the door now. Okay. On the, I'm gonna reveal the uh, the motor of my life. Um, I always wanted to be a musician, and music to me is the most important thing in the world, and always has been. And <coughs> the reason for that is I was born into a very unusual family situation. My, uh, my parents' first daughter was heavily disabled, Sarah, and um, she didn't live with us. She had to live in a home. She was um, blind and she couldn't walk, she couldn't talk. And um, being born into a family dynamic um, of any kind is normal to the person born into it. Of course. There's nothing unusual about that. It's only later you find out it's unusual. It's very, very normal. Um, but the one thing on earth my sister loved was music. She loved jazz music. So this, you know, this could have been um, Miles Davis, So What. I remember those notes. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. Yeah. And the joy that spread over her face, uh, to me, solidified. There's one thing of value in the world. Yeah. And that was music. Yeah. And from then on, I was, I was a musician. Yeah. You know, five years old, everyone else, oh, what do you want to be? I want to be a musician. Obviously, I had a few, you know, I wanted to be a digger driver for a while. Yeah, cool. Stuntman. Yeah, right. stuntman. I wanted to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. I wanted to be Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> Glad that didn't work out. Um, but yeah, to me, music was and still is the most important thing in the world uh, due to that experience. And, um, and people, you know, used to, some people used to look at me quite strangely. My parents loved it. They supported me all the way and still do yeah. um, with my music career. And I think, again, I mean, I don't know what it's like to have uh, a disabled child, but what they say is that it radically shifted their ideas of what you want your child to be. So, if, okay. so, so having Sarah, who was disabled, you throw away all the kind of the preconceived ideas of oh, I want them to follow me in my job. I don't want them to follow me in my yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just, you just are. You, you, yeah. you it's very zen in a way. You just accept the moment yeah. and where you're at, and the pleasure is in the small things in life, which we so forget. So they always just wanted me to follow my dreams, follow my passions. Um, the Saint Columbus uh, Bexley Heath School Careers Advisor didn't quite agree with them. <laughs> where, where was he directing you to? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've no idea. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I've no idea. Um, I think he just thought I was a lost, a lost cause. Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So. If you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. It's crazy, isn't it, that... You know, hopefully the, the, 
them them days are long gone where a careers advisor will almost talk you out of what you want to be. Yeah, you're 15 years old. Someone's trying to talk you out of it. Mm. I mean, they should be supporting you. Or even, why aren't careers advisors really successful people? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rather than yeah. careers advisors in Absolutely. schools. Why don't you just get really successful people to come in? Yeah, and exactly. Say, well, you know, I did this. Maybe you should consider that. Yeah. You know? um, Surely someone that's good at giving advice on careers would be at the top of their career by now. I would expect, if that yeah. was your job, careers <laughs> advisor, that you may have had a really successful career. Yeah. But yeah. um, I don't think the uh, the education system in the nineties kind of mirrored that that kind of idea. Certainly didn't. Fortunately, I didn't listen listen to him and um, and carried on regardless. You know. Wonderful. Track four, first song you bought from a record shop. Yeah, again, you know, there was a couple of of tracks. I remember the the day I became a teenager. My parents had set me on a day out work experience with my uncle Dave, who who ran a tyre company who and he made and delivered lorry tires and uh, I don't know how this came about whether they thought it'd be a good idea maybe they were busy for the day maybe they thought I needed toughening up you know yeah. they sent me out I've never worked so hard in my damn life as I did yeah. that day but I remember <laughs> this is probably the least uh, the least uh, likely situation to happen I remember sat in the van and um, and a record came on and it was salt and peppers push it and I was absolutely captivated yeah. I thought what is this music? Yeah. And it, it was like eating the greatest meal of your life. Yeah. It, it went into me. And I became fascinated. I was like, right, that's it. I'm going to find out how you make music that sounds like this. Yeah. And um, I just fell in love. Obviously, I didn't find out for a long time because there was no information. You couldn't yeah. go to the library and say, how do you make music that sounds yeah. like this? You know, and they say, oh, you need a sampler and a drum machine. And, yeah. You know, none of this was known. So it was just utterly abstract to me. Um, so I fell in love with, with Salt and Pepper's Push It While Out. Sonically with... still great. Oh, I mean, the sound of it, you know. Funnily so enough, um, with me, when me and my wife married, she was very pregnant, and our first dance was uh, yeah. with Salt and Pepper's Push It. Really? <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons, she was about to give birth. Brilliant. And uh, she couldn't do the first dance, so uh, my great friends in, in, uh, in a dance troupe called Sink the Pink led the first dance to Salt oh, and Pepper's wonderful. Push It. So that's really stayed with me. Um, but I didn't pick that record, because I... I think my dad actually went to the shop and bought that vinyl because okay. he was so supportive of any music I liked. Yeah. He'd go and buy me the vinyl, um, which I still have. Um, but I, I think the first record that I actually went to our price to track down was the Prodigy Experience. Mm. And that was the moment in my life when I became definitive of the previous generation. That was my music, and we'd arrived. And the, the jilted generation. Well, the dark, yeah, the jilted generation arrived. Top of the pops, there were dancing ostriches in yep. like three D vision. Yeah, there was a load of spotty kids from Essex who looked like your mates. Yeah, and uh, and music that that just sounded like sped up cartoons. I couldn't yep. hear the music uh, as a kid. It just sounded like this kind of Technicolor sped up mess. But there was, aside from Charlie, yeah, there was also your Sesame's Treat yeah. and Trip to Trumpton, and there yeah, was yeah. all of them kind of cartoon novelty type hardcore, right? Whatever you want to call it, on a ragged tip, yeah, and like, um, but I think a lot of those acts, maybe not so much the Ragged Twins, but you know, whoever done Sesame Street and things like that. 
at the time, I remember putting Charlie in the same box as that. Yeah, yeah it was then, very much like that. All of a sudden, you hear everything else. And yeah. Then, then you start to think, hang on, this band's a little bit different. Well, that's why I chose this record, because I bought it as an album. And... Um, and the moment that it really landed was when the weather experience comes on. Halfway through the uh, the record, there's this like, then like, you know, winds cold, you know, someone yeah. reading the weather forecast and this amazing composition. Yeah. Oh, spine tingling. <laughs> and I just thought, this, this is an act who's one up. Yeah. 10 up 20 yeah. up from everything else um, and that really sort of stayed with me you know because like as a kid I got into all the cartoon stuff but then that album it was suddenly we were in a new place yeah again that that cartoon thing quickly died away and and uh, and the prodigy revealed themselves to be this world-class act and Liam Howlett as you know the finest composer of you know from Braintree you know? <laughs> it's it's something that well, yeah, uh, so many people have chose Prodigy tracks on this podcast as well, and I mean, literally recorded one last week, and uh, and it was with someone from Essex, and they chose Wind It Up from that album. But if you think of the story, it is remarkable, isn't it? I mean, they just they were kind of normal kids, yeah, from you know from Essex, from Braintree, and which isn't the epicenter of culture, Braintree. <laughs> it's really not. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of figure out yeah. from the name alone. Yeah. Um, and and then they kind of got swept along in this rave scene, mm. but then had the the perseverance to take this difficult technology and make their own, you know, Liam Howlett make his own rave music, um, and then the force to get it live, you know, admittedly not in a traditional setup, but then what I think was so remarkable about the band was the way they through the 90s they just pushed and pushed and pushed outside of their comfort zone and incorporated Nirvana and Rage Against the Machine and saw that festival culture and um, and became a counter-cultural phenomenon headlining metal festivals yeah it's crazy yeah utterly crazy and I think something that you know we talk a lot about the tribes subcultures but you know, for me, we were very uh, fluid. We were tribal fluid. <laughs> As the, the kids may be uh, gender fluid. And I remember being a metaler in the week and a raver at the weekend. Yeah. And the prodigy really brought those two worlds together. And, and what I think It never worked the other way. A metal band would never be playing in Ibiza. In a rave. And, yeah. like, it wouldn't happen. And, like, yet yeah. the prodigy could headline any festival whatever genre yeah because they're just out there on their own yeah and then uh fast forward to world of infidels you know prodigy were a big influence but we were looking more to the clash and hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And, um, and that sort of gang of four, a uh, bit new order. We were looking to a different kind of uh, a genesis to start the band. And uh, unbeknownst to us, but we ended up then supporting the Prodigy on tour and played a lot of shows at Brixton Academy with them. And um, and bizarrely, this is one of the most bonkers things that happened to us. We turn up to a club in York called York Fibbers, a very small underground yeah. venue. We're headlining. It's a great place. Some of the best nights of my life there. And this band was supporting us. Clever brains frying. Flying? Clever brains frying. Right. And um, that was Keith Flint's solo band supporting infidels at Fibbers. Wow. So we spent the whole night hanging out with Keith. And uh, he just comes into the dressing room. All right, all right, lads. He's got his like, you know, he's got his cigarette loaded with a few uh, extras, and he's got his bottle of cognac. He's like, anyone want some cognac? Oh, wow. <laughs> and we sat on beer crates in this tiny little backstage with Keith all night. Loveliest man, you know. Oh, and, amazing. Um, and then yeah, went on to support the prodigy, which was a a real cultural highlight uh, for me. Even though I knew supporting the prodigy, you just get fed to the lions. Yeah. And, and we had the whole front row of the Prodigy fans stood in line with their middle fingers up to us <laughs> from the beginning to the end of our set. And I loved it. That's persistent. <laughs> yeah, I loved Wonderful. it. Wonderful. I thought there's only one tribe of Prodigy fans. <laughs> it was great. OK, well, um, whilst we're, t- we're talking Prodigy and Raves, then it's fitting that we're at uh, track five now, which is a song that soundtrack your years clubbing. Oh, man. I mean, you know... I'm a, I'm a huge clubber. I was, anyway, not so much now. I just, you know, I love getting lost in the dance floor and I love just the rhythm and the way that the, the crowd becomes one united energy. Um, that's something that I think also... Uh, can you resonates. lose yourself to that? Oh, man, yeah. I just, I can I, I struggle now. Um, but I think that's because I'm just constantly thinking, oh, God, the kids are going to be up in four hours, <laughs> three hours, two hours, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of put a bit of a damper on it. Yeah. But I, I, spent, I spent probably, you know, from I started going clubbing in Dartford Zens. DJed there for three years. Which is, thinking about it, the most comedy name for a club. It's, it's not even Zen. Certainly not Zen. Zens. <laughs> Zens, right? I, let, let's talk about Zens. <laughs> I got approached to uh, put on an alternative night at Zen's yeah. in Dartford. Uh, I'd never been. I've been told that it was like they, they had this unique selling point, which was that at a certain point in the night, the lighting rig would lower. Yeah. And it was like seeing some sort of spaceship land. It weren't. <laughs> that, was, that was the first thing when I realised this, this wasn't going to be all it was promised. Uh, 
And that is, and I've DJed in a lot of clubs over the years. Yeah. Um, and I've DJed a lot in Essex as well. That night there, I think it got to the point where when people say bored to tears, <laughs> I remember thinking, I'm welling up. Yeah. This is that unpleasant, I'm welling up. <laughs> and it was at that point that this guy asked me for about the fourth time on the row, uh, in a row, I'm a believer by the monkeys. <laughs> Play it, you wanker. And I just thought, I'm done here. Yeah. I've just been called a wanker because I won't play the monkeys. And, oh, it was an awful place. It was an awful place. Yeah. But it was our place. <laughs> I had one across the I had one yeah. across the bridge called Pizzazz, mate. We all used to go. So that was my first clubbing experience. And I remember, you know, I'd turn up in my trench coat, you know, straight from a rock pub in Crayford called The Swan with all my, all my Crayford mates. And we'd go to Nights Out at Zen's, you know. And I remember DJs like Brandon Block and, you know, really... Yeah. like bad fit yeah for the uh for the kind of crew that we were back then but actually you know as time went on we kind of started to embrace that sort of house music um and i remember wonderful tracks like the first time you know you heard josh wink played there first time i heard renegade master a real you know solid house mm. house uh tracks and then we got really into clubbing and 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 did a lot of it um, but at the same time, my dad, you know, I've talked about my dad a lot about his support of music. Um, we, he used to, put, I'm not going to say this. <laughs> I used to deliver the labor lead leaflets for him. Right. I will say he used to pay me a fiver to go and deliver all the labor leaflets yeah. around Crayford. And, uh, and he bought me, um, second toughest in the infants by underworld. Greatest album title ever. I know. And and I don't know why. I think he must have read a review. He was the kind of, he's the kind of guy that reads a review. He's yeah. like, I bought your record. Um, I put it on. We both put it on. Like, what on earth is this? You know. Yeah. But I put it on my, on my Walkman, taped it onto tape, put it on my Walkman. And I used to walk around Crayford, delivering labour leaflets through the door, listening to Underworld. And then, you know, I got, became a massive fan because, again, to me, they really key into that sense of otherness. They just take you through the portal somewhere to this space of just human connection you know absolute euphoria and uh yeah i got became a huge fan and then I, the next thing i bought was was the xl records uh cd which uh very early rave xl tracks i tracked that down from a, a like black market records or something and the lot i think the last track on it or the first track i remember now was was res by underworld and i mean what a record that is and to yeah. think i mean i didn't hear it when it was first come out I was still a couple of years late to it, but imagine hearing it then. Absolutely astonishing. And um, I became a huge Underworld fan for my whole life and went to see them loads of times. And then they created the Rez Cowgirl live mashup, which is one of the greatest medleys yeah. in history. And it's astonishing. And then, and then uh, Cowgirl was remixed by uh, Bedrock. And I remember that, that remix absolutely thundering out in the clubs. Yeah. And, and they just sort of, they just injected steroids into it. Yeah. You know, the, the drums went from, you know, sounding like a herd of elephants to a load of trampling bison. You yeah. know, it was just <laughs> absolutely thundering. Yeah. And then they just turned up the dial of those drops, you know. So when the drops come, I mean, you're, you're fizzing with, yeah. with the energy of it. And, you know, I, I love them. These Essex boys know how to make dance music, don't they? Essex boys know <laughs> how to make da dance music. Uh, what? You know what is it with the Kent 
boys that just can't make the dance music, like the Essex boys. I blame Zen's. Yeah, it's all Zen's fault. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? Oh, well, you've got some... We'll get on to what's come out of Kent. Um, well, we'll get on to that next, I suppose. But just, just incidentally, like, what, what, what is it that you wanted from clubbing? Well, initially, like... <coughs> I think that there was a divide in school between those kids that were good at sport and the other kids. And uh, at the time, the kids that were good at sport were really popular. And um, I don't know why, I was never very good at sport. I'm not particularly competitive in sport. I don't really mind, you know, if someone scores a goal. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like playing sport. But I yeah. never really mind too much if I win or lose. It's yeah, just yeah, not yeah. a be or an end all to me. I just like playing the game. Yeah. Um, Whereas with, with music, um, I just, again, I was taken over by its force very, very young. And that just really mattered to me. To me, that was very important. And so I think going clubbing in the early days was probably to, uh, I don't know, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, I think there was definitely elements of like meeting girls. Um, but I think for me, there's like, I genuinely believed that I was trying to get to a place like a spiritual place. There was a spiritual side of 90s clubbing. You know, we had, again, it was, we had a lot of like mandalas and all mm-hmm. kind of like pseudo Goa Indian yeah. stuff that we'd re culturally appropriated and stuck it up. <laughs> but I believed that at the time. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think it was as naff as it may appear now. I remember going to, you know, places like Whirligig and Megatripolis and that was like stepping onto the set of Blade Runner, you yeah. know. I think that was just the sense of other that I was looking yeah. for. Whirly Gig's one of them nights that gets kind of forgotten about. Yeah. And, and that was that was a bizarre yeah. thing. It was like in a church where they dropped mm. a parachute on you and you yeah. flayed around under the parachute. To Transglobal Underground. Yeah, yeah, to Transglobal <laughs> Weird. And this was, you know, my agenda coming on this, this show, was like, OK, people have probably, you know shared similar experiences but I really thought wouldn't it be fun to shed a light on the sort of forgotten 90s the the 90s that that hasn't really survived uh, in the same way that we and and I think history sort of tends to reshape a decade Mm. in its own sort of image and I wanted to sort of shed light on my experiences and experiences that were very popular in the 90s that have sort of culturally gone yeah um, like those whirly gig parachute yeah. moments and the Goa stuff and some of the yeah. records. Absolutely. Um, because I think there's elements of that resurfacing in today's young people looking for a connection to something deeper. Do you think that's, that's due to the fact that everything that is presented to us on a day-to-day basis is quite disposable, moves very quickly? And do you think that, you know people are looking for something a little bit with a little bit more substance now yeah i think uh, i think it's a really interesting question and i don't think it's one that can be answered with a definitive answer but i think to find things now seems to be easier than ever so to be a music fan pre the internet was actually a, a kind of job wasn't it a journey it was like you had to you had to first find well what is this music called then you had to find out where to go. When you finally found the record shops, you had to get the courage to even go in them. Then you had to get the courage to speak to the really intimidating person yeah. who ran them yeah. and not feel like a complete idiot because yeah. you don't know what you're doing. So you had to you had to fight, you had to earn it. Yeah. So when you got these kind of white label records or and then you played them out or played them at your mate's house, they were really badges of kind of yeah. of honour 
that you tracked it down and there may only be 20 of those in yeah. existence. Uh, you know, pick, white labels with frogs on them, whatever. And I think the internet has brought a lot of things into much more immediate reach. But I think some of the other things are still as elusive as ever. And I think yeah. that could be something that people are finally sort of realising that they there might be more to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I look at j just people's habits going out now. Like, obviously, I'm a club promoter and... Yeah. and, and I do all the things I've always done to try and get people to attend my events every every weekend. Um, but I'm also aware now that we live in in a society where lots of people seem to want an experience now when they go out. So I'm talking whether that's secret cinema, whether that's yes. locked in a room experience, whether yeah, that's yeah. some immersive. What everything's mm. seems to people seem to be craving something more do yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah yeah i think you know i mean surely that can only be the result of like constant media definitely mobile phone yeah. screen culture that yeah. we just want to feel yeah more completely completely track six favorite song from an artist from your home county yeah i can't remember why i chose this stones oh yeah so um yeah i mean essex may have had the rub on uh Rave on culture. Kent on rave culture, but I don't think any band is iconic in the rock music genre as the Rolling Stones. I think you're pretty much. And uh, they famously met on Dartford Station. But the reason I chose this, you know, several reasons. I became a Rolling Stones fan when I was at Glastonbury in 1990 something, and um, I'd had a bus stop with my girlfriend at the time because uh, she wanted to watch Travis. And I wanted to watch Left Field. <laughs> I mean, I think history will suggest I was right. <laughs> the I would have been with you, mate. <laughs> at the time, Travis <laughs> were a really big band. Yeah. And uh, and I just decided, okay, we're done. And we subsequently split up after this night. It was a real three-year... It was the nail in the three-year relationship. So I went off into the night to watch Left Field on my own. And uh, I loved it. It was amazing. They were so good. And uh, at the very end of the last note faded away, it was probably warbling dub bass knowing left field. As it faded away, the person in front of me turned around and it was one of my best mates, Bongo, from university. And he was like, you're all right, you know. He's from Wigan or something, you know. And then he's like, come on. <laughs> and we went off into the night and we were dancing in this uh, breakbeat tent. You know, it was the 90s, listening to like Adam Friedland and all that kind of stuff. And then in the middle of the set, they just stop the record and they put on Jumping Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones and I, I, still, I still get goosebumps thinking about it the raw visceral power in that yeah. record it's like a it's like a storm it's like a hurricane you know and I'd never heard it like that before yeah and I guess that's what it would have sounded like at the time you know this guitar and everyone went bananas yeah and that's one of the first times I'd really seen, you know, because in the 90s, club culture was pretty, pretty kind of genre mm -hmm. tight, if that's a word. Yeah. yeah, people played breakbeat sets and house sets. And this was the, this must have been 96. So this was, you know, the impact of kind of genre mashing had really, mm. that was the first time I'd really heard it in that context. And yeah, the record sounded fantastic, and I felt so proud to be from Dartford, where the Rolling Stones had, had uh, met and famously uh, all gone to school. 
So um, I became a Rolling Stones fan, and uh, I used to deliver my paper round to Chastillion Road, where Keith uh, Richards used to live. And he needs a blue plaque, by the way, whoever decides that. Yeah. Um, and later on, me and my dad both read uh, the biography Life of Keith Richards. And uh, my parents bought their house from uh, Mrs... Uh, I think her name was Mrs Yard, or something like that. And uh, I lived in this tiny little box room in the house, where so I, I had my stereo, my record, and that was it. It was a bed, yeah. <laughs> stereo. Um, and um, we, we read the biography, and um, Keith Richards, at school, became really good friends with Mrs Yard's son. And uh, we later found out, you know, from reading the biography, that Keith used to come around to, to where we lived wow. when it was owned by Mrs Yard. And that kid's bedroom was the little box room at the front of the house, which was my bedroom. Keith Richards used to hang out in so your bedroom. And I was like, I knew that room had an amazing energy to it, you wow. know. When I listened to records, it used to fizz. <laughs> and I was thinking maybe that was the fizz of Keith yeah. still in the room. Oh, and I thought, wonderful. isn't that an amazing story? Yeah. So... Okay, so around the time clubbing, I imagine this is the time when Infidels were forming. Yeah, Infidels formed as a direct result against Travis. <laughs> <laughs> we were oh, like... I'm loving this Travis thread. Does it... Do we... Why does it always rain? Right, so let's talk about guitar music at that point. because that was bad, it, it was bad. It was bad. Right? Because we'd seen... We'd seen Manchester, we'd seen grunge, yeah. and then we'd seen Britpop. Yeah. And Britpop, love it or hate it, it had lots of big sounding bands coming yeah. out of it. And then it went Travis, Travis <laughs> Turing Breaks, Embrace, yeah. and it went very acoustic. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, Travis had this huge selling album. Yeah. And it's not music that your parents are going to go, what's this shit? Turn yeah, it no, off. no. They're going to like it. It's not music that's going to do anything, I don't think. No. No. I feel bad. I feel bad saying negative things about any music these yeah. days. But at the time, you know, I was young, yeah. and I just couldn't believe where we were yeah. culturally in the UK at yeah. the turn of the millennium with guitar music. Yeah. You know, great things were happening in electronic music and dance music, but guitar music to me was in a real it was bad in a low, way. Definitely. And um, you know, we took it upon ourselves to. To fix the problem. Yeah. And we thought, you know, let's form a band that can play fabric. We used to go clubbing in fabric. There was this amazing stage and we, there was never a band on there. Well, not like I remember. Um, let's form a band that can play that. And so, yeah, we, we looked at, I think probably the best guitar-based music at that time was Uncle, um, which is not a perfect record, but it was futuristic. and it was science fiction. Uh, yeah. It was optimistic and it was trying to go forwards. And I think it was a remarkable record for that. So we took that and yeah, we looked at like the primals and what they'd done. Um, and we looked at New Order. And then we looked at The Clash and you know, we looked at Gang of Four and we looked at the, the punk funk uh, kind of scene. And, um, and we stirred it all up, you know, and came up with this. That's a good pot. It was a great pot, you know. It was a great pot. And uh, and we stirred it all up. And we sort of... Yeah, a bit of where John lied and joined left field. So a bit of the Sex Pistols in yeah. there. We mashed it all together. And, yeah, we came up with... Uh, oh, and a, we loved Prince. So we just threw Prince in as the, mm. as the, as the unique spice in the, yeah. uh, in, the, in the meal. And we came up with a track called Leave Your Body. 
And we also decided that one of the problems with this, uh, the, the state of guitar music, was fundamentally due to the colossal size of the major record labels at the time. They just had such power. And I thought we'd, we'd lost the underground. And we'd lost what creates this this visceral music in the first place. So we took a lot from our friends in the hip hop scene about, you know, we asked them, how do you make a record? How do you get it into a shop? Uh, obviously pre-internet. Mm. And we asked them all the, you know, how do you get it pressed? Where do you do all this? So we took all their contacts and we made our own little record um, on a label we invented called Dead at 30. You know, we were young and stupid. Um, so we created Dead at 30 Records and we pressed Leave Your Body. And yeah, we took it around the shops in Soho, sold three or four copies to the shops. And then two weeks later, we got a message uh, that John Peel had bought one and was playing it on his show. And um, and that was it, you know, the, the fire was lit. And then, you know, very quickly we had, you know, basic residency at Fabric, or felt like. Mm. I felt like I knew it so well. We used to hang out in the ice bucket backstage. Yeah. Yeah, this industrial size ice container where we used to get in it. Yeah. <laughs> that was probably... Poor people drinking all those drinks, eh? Like sweaty rock band in the ice bucket. Um, yeah, we, we started playing Hackney. Uh, that's not Hackney. We used to play, play Fabric uh, on the Friday night. And, uh, yeah, and I was being sent to Hackney Community College on the Saturday morning to do a teaching qualification. So I'd be up till six playing Fabric. Then at eight o'clock, it was teacher qualification time, where my job there was to teach old ladies how to make beats on reason as my can you teach amazing so it was this crackers time and I remember my, my dad was like always have another string to your bow he always yeah. says that always have another string to your bow and he wouldn't let me quit the teacher thing so uh, even though the band was going really really well and then yeah. we, we signed to Wall of Sound and, and yeah we signed a deal with uh, Sony ATV Publishing and PS in, in Europe and we, we got flung around the world you know for 11 years Traversing about eighty two thousand miles and yeah. a gazillion hangovers. Okay, and then well, let's let's move on to track seven. Yeah, and then I want to pick back up on Snow Palms. Yeah, uh, and and obviously your your teaching went from teaching old ladies about reason to yeah. uh, to, 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 to teaching, teaching young to people reason <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um so for track seven uh, it's your opportunity to um to be a dj and, uh, and an influencer in this day and age uh and recommend a song that you think many may not know that you think uh they'd enjoy yeah again you know like for i I mean, there's the personal you, and if there's a non-personal me, it's my kind of world of infidels. You know, if I'm anyway remotely a tiny bit famous for something, there's a few people in the world that absolutely love that band. So anyone outside of my personal sphere will know me through that route. And uh, I thought this would be a great opportunity to to really kind of, for those few people that love the infidels, to fill in, like, where the hell I've been for the last decade. Yeah. And... Um, and I, after the band, completely psychologically, emotionally and physically collapsed. I mean, I absolutely fell apart. The wheels fell off the, the map machine and, and I really hit the ditch hard. Uh, all my relationships broke up and it was, it was disastrous for me personally. Um, but, and I retired from music. I was like, that's it, that's it, I'm done. I cannot carry on doing this anymore. So uh, I pursued other things. I don't know if you want to talk about that or not, but... I went down another path 
Um, oh, go on. Yeah, so, so I decided that I wanted to contribute to society and I wanted to help all those people that had maybe had similar experiences to me in education where their way of thinking doesn't fit with conventional kind of modes of assessment. So you're kind of labelled thick, yet you're going to do something quite remarkable. So I was like, right, that's it, I'm going to change the education system. <laughs> I've won my war on Travis, now I'm going to take on the education system. Curriculum, I'm yeah, coming yeah, for you. right. So I, I've dusted my sleeves up and I, I, I googled the best education university in the world. I was going to go to Melbourne in Australia and do it. And then I found out that a lot of the teachers there had studied in the Institute of Education in London. So I rolled my sleeves up, I'd had some money that, um, that, I'd, that I'd taken a little bit of money from the infidels at the end, and I signed up for this Masters in Education at the Institute of Education. And my God, was it way harder than anything I've ever done in my life. Um, you enjoy it? Well, I think it's similar to, like, pushing yourself physically. Do you enjoy that ache of pushing yourself harder than you've ever enjoyed? Not at the time, yeah. <laughs> but you're quite proud of it when yeah. you survive. Yeah. So no, I didn't enjoy it at the time. I hated it. It it felt like a complete undermining of my identity, and uh, and it really pushed me. I you know I wasn't an academic person. I couldn't really write an essay, let alone a publishable journal article. I didn't know what a journal was before that masters. Yeah. So anyway, I went down this route, and it was hard. And I almost dropped out halfway through, but. I, picked myself up and pushed on and um, I made a real about turn because a lot of things dropped in my head then and, and I suppose the crucial one which is the point of it which was this concept of critical thinking and what that allowed me to do was to look at the music industry and look at creativity and education as a system um, where sort of actors operate in that system so yeah while my kind of music industry career may have canned in sort of you know, late 2000s, the music industry radically changed, which wiped out a lot of five-piece bands. Yeah. It became very difficult to be a five-piece band. And rather than them feeling personally a bit rubbish for not writing Mr. Brightside, I felt like, oh, well, that happens in life. You yeah. know, things change, systems change, and then a new wave of things grow. So that really helped me mentally rebuild. And... Um, and then after getting a, an academic article published, which was, you know, astonishing achievement for me personally yeah. uh, on creativity, I then just had that nagging pull back into music um, again. And I just had that sort of strange feeling of, oh, I'm not done yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not done. So uh started to really have a think and I entered a two-year period of making the worst music on planet Earth. Because Travis? I think it was worse than Travis, yeah, because at least Travis, you could say some people liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even really music, yeah. you know. I, was, I got kind of obsessed with what happens when you stretch music. You know, when you put a track in, like, a, a, and, and, a, and you stretch it. I don't know how, uh, how music production heavy your listenership is or you are, but you can basically put a piece of music into a piece of software and you can slow it down about... 40 times, 50 yeah. times. And you get all these like, you get all these cracks. Yeah. I became obsessed with that and started making music out of it and didn't have any idea what I was doing, but found teaching a creative course at Westminster with, uh, with uh, Brian Eno's biographer, David Shepherd. 
and he, for some reason, joined me in these experiments. And uh, at that time, I started listening to kind of new music and getting into new sounds and, yeah, discovered um, Hannah Peel. And the record just blew me away. You know, this it just felt like it felt like a takeover of classical music was happening where where there was a group of musicians who were bringing a punky attitude as in we can do this too yep. to classical music and i just thought you know what a wonderful fertile arena to move into mm. where you you instead of guitars bass and drums you're operating with bass clarinets and horn sections with synthesizers and modulars and 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 i think you know Hannah Peel's uh, record you know, again, it taps into that transcendental quality, but it mixes in orchestral elements. Yeah. And to me, it just it just offered a, a wonderful door forwards. And then from here in that record, um, the experiments became me joining Snow Pops and moving into a sort of tubular bells inspired meets Underworld meets Steve Reich and Philip Glass and Meredith Monk um, mashup of modern classical. <laughs> electronic minimalism and you enjoy that ah you know i absolutely love it and uh for me it feels great to be accessing a part of of what i love about music that would never really surface in the infidels like a lot of people who knew the band from the inside would know i'd make these 12 minute long kind of minimalist compositions which would then be chopped and segued and sung over and remixed by the other members of the band so it felt very liberating to then just present those in their pure, yeah, of course, pure form. And you know, I'm one of the one of the uh, the, pra- the cultural practitioners that saved me in my kind of post uh, rock breakdown was Brian Eno reading how he thought about culture in a different way to maybe idolising the sort of rock and roll dream, whereas I can be more rock and roll every day, which kind of didn't end too well for me personally. And Brian Eno's uh, thoughts on culture, creativity, offered a door out of that. So it was a perfect kind of combination of, of a love of things kind of classical and minimalism with Brian Eno's kind of ideas and with Electronica thrown in. And I think, you know, Hannah Peel's record is, is one of the records that does this, I think, the best. Uh, she's part of a group of composers working, um, Anna Meredith as well, who are, who are doing great things. Katrina Barbieri and Caitlin Aurelia Smith, who are all mixing up these electronic elements with a little bit of, sort of transcendental space yeah. and some classical music in a really wonderful way. Okay. And the teaching? So, yeah, the teaching, um, that was something that I did initially uh, for cash. I was broke, like a lot of musicians, and I was on the dole, like a lot of musicians. And then uh, New Labour, God bless them, put a scheme together to help musicians which was really, really useful. And um, so I started to do that. And then I was offered a job under the, under the Labour government. They uh, decided to put a lot of money into education to get kids um, basically off the streets and teach them music production skills in relation, uh, uh, in return, sorry, for them doing maths and English uh, key skills. And they desperately needed teachers and this was, I happened to be in Hackney at the time, so I ended up in Bromley by Bow yeah. at the dawn of the grime era. So there I was in 2002 teaching grime kids how to make beats on Reason. 
which was just a bonkers experience. It was so bonkers, I needed to get a gum shield made from the doctor because I couldn't control these classes. And at night, I was chewing my tongue in stress. Really? trying to control these classes. I kept thinking, if my boss walks in, you know, they'd be on the tables, rapping, there'd be music everywhere. My boss walks in, I'm just fired. Yeah. I've got no control. I was 22, they were 18 or whatever. Yeah. I had no control. I did not know how to deal with this situation at all. But I look back really fondly on it now. It's like a baptism by fire into sure. teaching. And I look back on those sessions of like, oh, I wish I'd documented it or captured yeah. it. I should have been taking photos and videos Definitely. and record, archiving the music. Anyway, I'm not... Just not an archivist kind of character, so I was just stressed that I was going to get sacked. Yeah. So yeah, I started teaching, and um, and then gave it up as soon as I could. Yeah. You know, the infidels took off, quit teaching. I was like, see you later. I'm off, uh, become a professional uh, electronic rock and roll star, which I did for about four or five years, and yeah. then I, I I felt really lost. I missed something like a yeah. vital feeling of giving back. My dad's a teacher. My mum was a social worker. And I think that's just part of my makeup, that need to help the next yeah. generation to serve. And uh, I asked if I could come back and teach. So I went back to that college and started teaching again um, and just found I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I had a massive, completely psychological breakdown, thought I'm going to pursue teaching, did an MA in education, and then was offered a job at Westminster um, teaching there. And now, for me, I... I that they're both sides that I absolutely need to remain stable and yeah. need to be composing and performing and making music, but I need to be helping people with their creativity. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and it's a deeply fulfilling and enriching experience like we were talking about before. Yeah. And yeah, I now teach creativity theory at Westminster. Um, and I teach a lot about artist branding. Yeah. Which brings up quite a lot of resonant points with some of my more kind of arty, friends yeah. my argument is i don't necessarily subscribe to like the idea of being a brand makes yeah. me feel sick yeah however if you operate like a brand and for a lot of these kids you know they can be working zero hours contracts in footlocker if they operate like a brand they are going to probably radically increase their chances of breaking through the yeah. craziness of the internet so i just teach them branding skills to help them with their music and identity. Lovely. And I love it, and it's wicked. <laughs> Matt, this has been a real joy. Yeah, it's been so much fun, yeah. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Where can people find out about Snow Palms? So Snow Palms is on all streaming uh, services under Snow Palms. We are, so I joined the band for the latest album, which, we're in a, you know, which we've just delivered. Um, I've delivered a track, I think, I'm really proud of called Atom Dance, so that should be dropping soon. The track out there that I've worked on is called Everything Ascending. A little nod towards the underworld there, yeah. for those that know. And um, yeah, there's a whole load of wonderful minimalist Glock and Mallet. We, yeah, I was going to say a bit Glock and Roll. Yeah. <laughs> I am have a dad. Been, have you been trying to find the point in this podcast to get that in? Squeeze it in at the end. I am a dad. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, yeah. Um, so, when I do the intro, I'm now going to introduce you as Glock and Roll Star. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm the only <laughs> Glock and Roll Star on planet Earth. And uh, yeah, Snow Palms, we have a website where we talk about cool stuff. And yeah, I have a website. So yeah, if you Google Snow Palms uh, or Infidels or Matt Goodison, you'll find a whole plethora of Well, when this comes stuff. out, are you happy for me to tag you in it on all the socials yeah, yeah, so yeah, people can come find Absolutely, you and, yeah, and tag, say hi? Tag me up. 
Lovely. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks. So nice to be here. There you go. That was Matt Goodison. He was good, wasn't he? That literally does what he says on the tin. It was a lovely chat. Um, it was really nice of him to give up his time and come in. And, yeah, what a diverse career of um, of of just being, I don't know, kind of covering all the bases of the music industry, I guess. Um, yeah, wonderful chat. Um, thanks ever so much for listening. Thanks again to Matt. Um, if you enjoyed that, please go and um, have a look in the, the back catalogue of this podcast. There's There's bundles over there. Please subscribe. If you see us on the socials, give us a like, love, retweet, share and all of that. And uh, yeah, and have a smashing week and I'll see you this time next week. Bye bye. Oh yeah, sorry, I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, um, there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365 day returns. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.